We've been looking, as Hilda mentioned, at the book of Ezekiel. And we've learned that Ezekiel was an Israelite prophet who was living in exile in Babylon. But a lot of what God gave Ezekiel to say was about the city of Jerusalem. Not only was it the capital city of Israel, it was also the city that housed God's temple. So Jerusalem had great significance. When God spoke to Jerusalem, he was actually speaking to all of Israel. Jerusalem was Israel's heart. In fact, God switches back and forth between the names Israel and Jerusalem. I'm going to do the same this morning. So just remember that they're being used pretty much interchangeably. Last time we finished halfway through chapter 14. The rest of chapter 14 and chapter 15 repeat the message that God's judgment is going to fall on Jerusalem because of her sin. But this morning, God gives Ezekiel a love story to tell Jerusalem. Now, this is not your average love story. It's not the kind of love story you expect to hear on a Sunday morning. In fact, I considered putting an 18 certificate symbol beside the title up there on the screen. Nevertheless, this is a love story. And you'll find it, as it says on the screen, in Ezekiel chapter 16. That's on page 841 in the church Bible. This is a love story in four chapters. We find the first chapter in verses 1 to 14. From abandoned baby to beautiful queen, God's gracious, ennobling love. In verse 1, Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean. Nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. And I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry 
I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you are adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. God is talking here to Jerusalem. And he begins by pointing back to her origins, her earliest days. In verse 3 he says, Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. The Israelites like to think of their roots as going back to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were the parents of Israel. And that was true. Genesis chapter 12 records how God came and made a promise to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. But here God says, your origins go back further than Abraham. Your roots are just as pagan as the nations around you. The Amorites and Hittites were the people who lived in Canaan before God gave Canaan to the Israelites. The Israelites were to drive those sinful nations out of Canaan. But here God says to Israel, don't forget your own past. Before I took notice of Abraham and entered into a covenant with Abraham, he and his people were indistinguishable from all the other peoples. They were equally far from me. God says, you were like an abandoned baby with no one to care for you. Look again at verse 4. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of those things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. We are very familiar with the procedure of cutting the umbilical cord and washing newborn babies. In ancient society, they were also rubbed down with salt. Apparently that was to clean and to strengthen the skin. Some Arab mothers still do that today. And newborns were also wrapped tightly up in bands of cloth. Apparently that was to ensure that their limbs were straight. But God says to Jerusalem, when you were born, nobody cared. No one was willing to do any of these things for you. No one was willing to take responsibility for you. You were abandoned. You were left to die of exposure out in the blazing sun. You had no future before I intervened. Verse 6. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. Kicking about in your blood means the blood and fluid discharged with the baby at birth. God saw this helpless baby, and he didn't just save her, he adopted her. Verse 6 is a formal declaration of adoption. Whoever claims a child in its blood is taking legal responsibility for that child. 
And God does take responsibility. Verse 7, I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Under God's care and attention, the child grew and thrived. She became beautiful because of his care. Verse 8, later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. The girl is no longer a baby. Now she's a young woman. She's no longer vulnerable to starvation and to the blazing sun. Now she's vulnerable in a quite different way. She's vulnerable to those who want to take advantage of her. That's the point of referring to her here as naked. It's a way of talking about being vulnerable. It's not that she's never been given clothes. As a baby, she was vulnerable or naked in one way. Now she's vulnerable or naked in a different way. And again, God says, I passed by. And again, God is the one who takes responsibility for this vulnerable girl. As a baby, he had adopted her. Now he marries her. That's the meaning of, I spread the corner of my garment over you. It's a symbolic way of saying, this lady is now under my care. I take responsibility for her well-being. I will love her and care for her as my wife. We find exactly the same symbolism in the book of Ruth. Ruth says to Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me. Does that mean she wants to crowd under his overcoat? No, she's asking him to marry her and love her and care for her. Here God says, that's what I did for you, Jerusalem. And that symbolism is followed then by a genuine solemn oath, a covenant of marriage. God says, you're my lady and I'm your man. Now we are overanalyzing this if we start asking, how can the same person who adopted the baby go on to marry the mature woman? The heading in the NIV calls this an allegory, or we might call it a parable. We're not supposed to press all of the details. The point is, the God who showed saving love to Israel in infancy, when she was just one family, is the same God who showed nurturing love to her as she grew to a nation down in Egypt. And he's the same God who claimed her and made her his own as a mature people. He brought her out of Egypt and he entered into a covenant with her on Mount Sinai. So God's love is being explained in terms of two things that we understand. Adoption and marriage. You might be thinking, okay, I understand that. But isn't this all about one-sided? God's the one doing everything here. And that's exactly the point. This is not supposed to be your average 21st century romantic love story. This is a story of gracious, ennobling love. It's about love shown to one who is abandoned and helpless. And frankly, not very attractive. This is the story of a woman representing a people 
who was loved, although she brought nothing to the relationship. This is about the love of God for the helpless and the unlovely. It's about his love for those who have nothing to bring to the arrangement, nothing except their helplessness. This is a story of love that saves and protects and nurtures the unloved. Nurtures them until they grow into beautiful maturity. This is about God's tender care for those who have no hope or security without him. And his care is unparalleled. Verses 9 to 14 describe the wedding. The bride is showered with luxuries, gifts, the best of food, the clothes of a queen. Look again at the description just to make sure it's clear in our heads. Verse 9, I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. God is not a begrudging lover. His grace is unrestrained. This woman, Jerusalem, is beautiful. And her beauty makes her famous among the nations. And she is beautiful because of God's love for her. She is lovely because he loves her. That's the key to this whole love story. This is not an arrogant statement by God. It's the simple truth. She brought nothing to the table. God found her helpless. She was swimming in her own yuck. But now she's lovely. She's stunningly lovely. And she is lovely because he loves her. This is not your average love story. This is a parable of what it means to be loved by God the Father Almighty. It's the story of every man or woman who comes to experience God's love. He takes the unloved and the unlovely and the helpless And he says to them, live. And he blesses them with nobility. He makes them jaw-droppingly beautiful. It would be nice if this love story ended at verse 14. But that was only chapter 1. We find chapter 2 in verses 15 to 34. And we could give chapter 2 this title. On every street corner, God's wife prostitutes herself. Follow with me as I read these verses from verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. 
You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes and put on, to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too, because you were insatiable. And even after that, you still were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you gave gifts to all your lovers bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite. For you give payment and none is given to you. God's wife prostitutes herself. Before any of the details are set out for us, we're given the root cause of this prostitution. Verse 15, this all happened because you trusted in your beauty. This lady, Jerusalem, Israel, noticed her fame. She noticed that others saw her beauty and she forgot the source of her beauty. She forgot that she was lovely because God loved her. She thought that her beauty was her own, to give to anyone who passed by. She thought the gifts she'd been given could be given to God's rivals. Someone has said, in her mind and heart, the gifts replaced the giver. Verses 15 to 22 describe how God's wife prostitutes the gifts that he gave her. 
Israel became a wealthy and prosperous nation. But she used her prosperity to build idols and shrines to idols and to offer sacrifices to idols, even child sacrifices. The children God gave her were offered up to pagan gods. Then verses 22 to 34 describe how God's wife prostitutes her own self. And to be perfectly honest, the language of the original Hebrew here is shocking. The translators of our English Bibles felt the need to tone it down for us. And that certainly makes it easier for me to read out in public. But it loses some of the effect of God's words. For example, in verse 25, the NIV says, At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. The Hebrew says, literally, you opened your legs to anyone who passed by. I could go on. The language gets even more graphic. But I think you get the point. God the Father Almighty is using graphic, offensive language. It would have been offensive to Ezekiel's first audience. And you and I hear it. We get offended. We get offended and we begin to realize how offensive sin is to God. We begin to realize what it means for God to forgive sin. One commentator in this passage wonders if we can really deal with this with decorum. But he's missed the point in a very big way. If God had decorum in mind, he would have told a completely different story. We may prefer God to speak politely about sin. We may wish that he'd given us the certificate PG version instead of the certificate 18 version. But God is not interested in being polite about sin. If we are offended by God's words, we have not yet understood how God is offended by sin. Even the sins which you and I think are really quite respectable, our greed and our pride, our refusal to forgive. God is saying, do you want to know how offensive sin is to me? Imagine your spouse going out to work on the streets. Imagine your spouse getting into car after car, night after night. Now you're beginning to understand. The way you feel about that is the way I feel about sin. This is a parable. What lay behind Israel's sin in these verses was her alliances with other nations. Egypt, the Assyrians, and so on. Instead of trusting in the Lord, trusting in the one who had given her everything she had, Israel ran to all the world powers of her day. She put herself in their hands. She went to them looking for well-being and security. Look again what God says down in verse 32. You adulterous wife, 
you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite. For you give payment and none is given to you. Sin is not like ordinary prostitution. The ordinary prostitute gets paid. She gets something out of the deal. But the sinner never does. There's a song that says, This world has nothing for me. And this world has everything. All that I could want. And nothing that I need. Sin amounts to giving and giving and giving. Selling yourself for this world and everything it offers. And the only reward for all that giving is emptiness. This lady had a husband who blessed her with everything. Every good gift. But she spends it all on those who care nothing for her. She chases around paying just to be used and abused. And finally, she is given to the lovers that she wants. Verse 35. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness in your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you find pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them, and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers. and They will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution, and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside, and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. Given to the lovers she pursued. God divorces his wife. In verse 37, God says he is going to publicly strip his wife. We saw earlier that when a man covered a woman with his garment, that was a symbol of marriage commitment. But when a husband stripped his wife, that was a symbol of divorce. He was withdrawing his protection and care. In this case, God is saying, These are the lovers you want, and these are the lovers you will have. God will not hold this woman against her will. She will be handed over to her lovers, but she will not find them to be what she expected. 
She called them to her for love, but they will only make war on her. The references here are to what Babylon will do to Jerusalem. It will be terrible. It's a picture we've already seen over and over in this book. But it's not the end of the story. This woman started life naked and abandoned. Now she's naked and abandoned again. But the only one who ever truly loved her promises that he will love her again. There's one chapter left in this love story. And in it we find a promise of eternal love. God's grace to the humble. We're not going to read all of this final section. But when it begins, there is no sign of a happy ending. Instead, God says to his divorced wife, let me tell you who your sisters are, Samaria and Sodom. Now we might shrug our shoulders and think, so what, what's the big deal about that? Samaria was the northern part of Israel. Long before Ezekiel's time, there had been civil war in Israel. The country had divided at that time into two kingdoms. The north was known as Samaria and the south as Judah. Ezekiel and his fellow exiles were from the south, from Judah. And those from Judah considered themselves really a cut above the north. After all, Jerusalem was in Judah. Jerusalem, the holy city, the home of the Lord's temple. Ezekiel's audience and their friends back home in Jerusalem would have been shocked and offended to hear God say, Samaria is your sister. You're no better than her. And it got worse. God says, your other sister is Sodom. Maybe Sodom rings a bell for you. In their day, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were notoriously evil and sinful. The book of Genesis describes how God destroyed those cities for their sin. He wiped them off the map. And forever after in Scripture, those cities were used as symbols of the worst of the worst. In fact, until quite recently, Sodom and Gomorrah were used the same way in our own vocabulary in this country. I've heard people come back from their holidays and say that the resort was like Sodom and Gomorrah. They didn't have to say any more at that point. I understood very well what the place had been like. By Ezekiel's time, Sodom isn't around anymore. But its reputation is well known to everybody. And for God to say to Jerusalem, Sodom is your sister, that's about as offensive as you could get. God says the worst city in history Well, it's a tie between Jerusalem and Sodom. Actually, it's even worse than that. Look at verse 48. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. So maybe it's not a tie after all. God has prepared the way for the end of the story. Follow with me from verse 53 down to the end of chapter 16. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, 
and of Samaria and her daughters and your fortunes along with them so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in giving them comfort. And your sisters, Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to what they were before. And you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom and all her neighbors and the daughters of the Philistines, all those around you who despise you. You will bear the consequences of your lewdness and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet, I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters. A better translation of the end of this verse would be, and not apart from my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then I will make atonement for you, for all you have done. And you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. Remember the root of Israel's sin. She was proud. She forgot who made her lovely. She trusted in her loveliness instead of the one who made her lovely. Her only hope is to remember her true state without God. And God will graciously show her that. He will show her by calling her back to himself along with all the other nations she used to despise. God says, look around you. By yourself, you have nothing that sets you apart from those around you. No special beauty or attractiveness. In verse 56 he says, You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride. You thought you were above her. But now it's time to realize you stand on level ground with her. You have no cause for pride. That's what's behind all these references to being ashamed and being humiliated. God is saying the only way forward for you, Israel, is to get off your high horse. Stop looking down on others and realize that in reality you are down there with them. Realize you have no reason to be proud. You're a desperate sinner like the rest. Like the rest, you have done nothing to deserve my love. If this lady is going to come back to God, it must be the way the tax collector came in the New Testament. By praying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Proud Jerusalem has to acknowledge that she is more wicked and sinful than she ever dared believe. If she will do that, if she will set aside her pride and her self-reliance, Then God says in verse 60, 
I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And this will be a covenant that includes her sinful sisters. Sisters like Sodom and Samaria. If they will come the same way, this new covenant will be big enough for more than just Israel. Well, how is God going to do this? Is he going to ignore all of that sin? Is he going to pretend it never happened? Now look what God says in verse 63. I will make atonement for you for all you have done. God himself is going to pay the cost of winning his wife back. His wife that no longer represents just Israel, but everyone who comes to him humbly. And when we remember the wife's prostitution, that is an amazing thing for God to do. Here in Ezekiel 16, God doesn't fill in the details. He foretells the end of this love story, but we don't see it happening. That has to wait until the New Testament. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 5. We read them earlier in the service. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the context of talking about human marriage, Paul describes what God did to win his wife for all of eternity. When Christ died for the church, she was not beautiful. She wasn't like the damsel in distress who inspired brave knights to go out and fight for her hand. No knight in shining armor would have been inspired by this lady. She was ugly. She was ugly with sin. She had nothing to offer. This lady wouldn't have caught anyone's eye, except maybe to cause them to turn away in disgust. But God came for her in the person of his son. He laid down his life to win her for himself and wash her. And now she is lovely because he loves her. In case you've missed it, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then the happy ending of this story is your happy ending. The ugly church made beautiful by Christ is made up of ugly sinners made beautiful by Christ. I suppose love stories are not really seen as being very practical things. Maybe that's true most of the time. But when you and I truly experience love, it changes us. We want to live for the one who loves us. We want to honor the one who loves us. The thing that's most likely to keep you and me from sin this week is the knowledge that we are loved deeply and graciously. We're loved by the one person who knows the full depths of our sin. 
What will keep you and me from sin is the knowledge that we are more wicked and sinful than we ever dared believe. But in Christ, we are more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. We are more wicked and sinful than we ever dared believe. But in Christ, we are more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. As this love story burns its way into our hearts, other attractions begin to lose their appeal. Other sources of affirmation and security and pleasure, they begin to look pretty weak. This love is the truest, richest love of all. As we grow to understand this love, we see the emptiness of sin and its idols. All the vain things that have charmed us. We're going to close by singing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Picks up on a lot of the things we've been saying. And we're going to respond in the last verse of this hymn by substituting the words shall have in place of the word demands. You'll see the change up on the screen. So let's stand and we'll sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <laughs>